So our text for this afternoon is taken from the book of Thessalonians, a small letter near the end of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read the verses 12 through 15. There we find the word of the Lord. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. And may the Lord add his blessing upon his word this afternoon. So loved ones in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we're going to talk about traits, the traits of a healthy church. I don't mean your BMI, your blood pressure, those kind of traits. We're talking about spiritually healthy in every way. What does it mean to be a spiritually healthy church? And as some of you know, we started in East Hamilton as a church plant a number of years ago now, and we came up with a mission statement as a kind of a guide to how we wanted to focus on the work that we are doing in East Hamilton. And the mission statement goes like this. We are a Reformed church in East Hamilton that seeks to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, intentional discipleship, and the promotion of the gospel both locally and abroad. That's our, our mission statement. And what I want to do this afternoon is tie in what it means to have intentional discipleship in a church and... A healthy church life. How are those two combined? And I think when you hear the word intentional discipleship, and we chose that phrase intentionally, no pun intended, because we want to be able to instruct our members, young and old, in the faith. Intentional discipleship is teaching them the faith, teaching our children the faith, teaching people who are new to the faith to know the faith, teaching the old to mature in the faith. So we want to talk to them about Christ. We want to show them the gospel, the history of salvation, who God is, what he has done. We want to pack that full with the truth that we confess in our Reformed theology, in our confessions. And so we're trying to do that. And and the Lord is blessing that. But if that's all we do as a church, in intentional discipleship, something is grossly missing. And that is cultivating a culture of love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, he says, It's possible to be be puffed up in knowledge, but not puffed up in love. He wants us to abound in love, not just in knowledge. And, and so for a church of Jesus Christ to be puffed up in knowledge is an anemic church. It's a sickly-looking church. If you want to have anything swollen in your life, it's a swollen heart for Christ. It's a life that's cultivated in love. And so we want to, as a church, cultivate a church that is growing in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ and in the love for Christ and others. That's our passion in East Hamilton. And I know that's your passion here in Grimsby to grow in the faith, in the knowledge of who Christ is, and to grow in love for Him and for His people and for the community around you. And that's all of our responsibility. 
In fact, it's possible to come into a church and know whether that church is healthy, whether the church is teaching the truth, and whether the church is cultivating a culture of love. I was reading, just anecdotally, I was reading a story of a young woman who walked into a church, and her friend invited her to this church, but her friend didn't show up. And she came into the church, and she was, she was and this is happening more and more, um, brand new to, to the Christian cause, brand new to a church, brand new to everything about what you do here this afternoon. And she came back, and she wrote to her friend later, she said, um, on the sign, it said, you are a warm and welcoming church. She said, I, I didn't experience that. When the preacher was preaching, there were people who were just indifferent to the preaching. When the people were singing, there were other people just indifferent to the singing. She said, after the church service, I, I tried to talk to a couple because I wanted to learn more about what the preacher was preaching on. He was preaching on faith, and, and they were very dismissive. She said, I saw some friends from my high school there, and they were very cliquey, and they had no time for me. She said, this might be a warm and friendly church, but it wasn't to me, and I will never come back. You see, when you cultivate a culture of love, that should not be happening. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be happening here, and I, and I pray it won't be happening at Mercy. It's just to be aware that this culture of love begins to emanate. It goes into the community that this is a safe place, and that this place is full of truth and love held in perfect tension and love. So a healthy church cultivates love. And I think there's four traits of a healthy, loving church that we find in our text this afternoon. I'm just going to unpack those with you for the next number of minutes. The first trait of a healthy, loving church is that the, the church uh, loves their leaders. They love their leaders. They respect and honor their leaders. That's a... a a trait of a healthy church. Here's another one. We pursue and practice peace. We'll get to that. Here's another one. We minister great. We minister with great patience. This is probably one of the ones we struggle with the most, but we'll unpack that for a bit this afternoon. And we resist revenge and do good. So let's begin with the four traits of a healthy church. Number one, she loves her God-appointed leaders. Now, if this wasn't in Scripture, this might seem a little bit self-serving. I'm a pastor, a leader ordained by the church, and I'm asking you to love me, or ask my church to love me. And um, it's easy for, for this to be a little bit you know, questionable if, if I'm preaching this call to, to love the leadership. But I think you need to understand that this is a command in Scripture, and Paul doesn't primarily have pastors in mind, though I think he does have pastors in mind. He has anyone who holds the office of, of his word. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. These are men who have been ordained in the church by Christ to, to administer the gospel, to teach it, and to admonish you if you're not living it. It doesn't exclude you know, small group leaders or Bible study leaders and deacons, but it, they're, they're second to what Paul is really trying to drive at, people who hold the office of pastor or elder, the presbyteros. They're called to administer the truth. And this is what Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And I am very, very aware that this is becoming harder for the average member in society 
and I hope not in the church, but let's just be honest. There are many, some even in the church, that hold the office of preacher and pastor and elder in some level of suspicion, especially if you're new to the Christian faith. The media has done a good job, and probably rightfully so, to diminish the, 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 the office of minister or clergy in this land. Because of the sins that clergy have committed over the years, our office as preachers, as gospel ministers of the word, has been tarnished and has been diminished. And so we're held in suspicion. How do we respect men like that, who lead like that? And I'm very, very sensitive about that as, as you minister on the streets of, of Hamilton and, and, and Grimsby. That people don't hold the office of minister and priest in a very high place anymore. But we're not going to look at society and decide how do we look at the office of preacher and minister of the word. No, we're going to look at God's word and how does God view the ministry of the word. And he holds it in high regard. You see, the chief shepherd gave to his church what we call under-shepherds to carefully handle the word of God and to teach and admonish his people. This is what we read in Acts 20, verse 28, when Paul is setting up teaching elders in, in the church of Ephesus. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, brought, which he bought with his own blood. Keep watch, you are shepherds. And as a shepherd, I'll tell you right now, we are very aware of what James writes, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 3, verse 1. He writes these words, few of you should become teachers, because you know who, the one who teaches will be judged more strictly. We approach this office, and we must, hum humbly, with trembling. This is a high calling. And yet, the Church of Jesus Christ, a healthy church, acknowledges, respects those who are laboring among you. You know, there are some, we'll just move into the pastorate for a little bit here, but there are some who think that the pastor um, still works just one day a week. I don't know where they thought that. In part because that's all the time they really see. Some of them only see the pastor on Sunday, so they think, well, he only works on Sunday. I was in Papua New Guinea and, uh, as a missionary, and when I um, was in my office, people thought I wasn't working, but when I took an axe or I took a shovel and started helping up cleaning around the, the church, they would say, oh, I'm work now. He's a man of work now. I hadn't done anything for the, my whole ministry there except when I was cleaning up the churchyard. I tried to tell him otherwise. But Paul says, when he says hard work or labor, what he's saying is actually, he actually uses the phrase manual labor. When you are working manually with your hands, and by the end of the day, you're very tired, that's the picture we have in our text. And you have to understand this afternoon, and I think many of you do if you've been around the clock a few times, that caring for people who are broken who are in need of grace is hard work. We, come, we enter in the trenches of the brokenness of her members and, and as elders and as pastors, even as deacons, it begins to be that all we really begin to see is, is the heartache and the pain that people are suffering. That seems to always bubble to the top that we have to address as leaders. I have to sit beside those who are dying and then grieve with those 
who lose the loved one. We have to hear the stories of abuse, past or present, marriages that are under attack, children who are not listening to their parents, people who are dealing with chronic pain and chronic illness, people who are struggling with doubts in the church or doubts in the faith. It goes on and on, and this becomes quite taxing on mortal men like us. It's hard work. And then you add to that the call to proclaim the gospel every week again, to unpack God's word, to wrestle and pray over that, and to prepare something that the congregation will say, that fed me, and then do it again, and again, and again. Yeah, it's hard work. And it's not a pity party that we need to have here. We just need the congregation, a healthy congregation, to know that they need to realize that their pastor and their elders are laboring hard for God's kingdom. And if they're not laboring hard, they are not fit for the gospel. Lazy pastors and lazy elders and lazy deacons are not fit to be called elders or pastors or deacons. That's not of Christ. But those who are laboring hard... This is what Paul says in verse 13. He says these words in verse 13. I should get my glasses out. He says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You don't esteem them because of their personality traits or their demeanor. And I hope that our demeanor, my demeanor, other demeanors of pastors fits the gospel ministry. But that's not why you esteem them. You esteem them because of their hard work. I'm just going to give you four, three practical ways to help to esteem your pastor. And I pray that you, you will soon have a pastor here to lead you. And your elders, here, here are three things. Just practical ways to help esteem your leadership in the church. Number one, honor them by responding to them. Maybe that's just my church, but we have a, quite a large number of Gen Xs or Gen Zs and millennials. I'm, I'm just going to throw you under the bus just briefly for a second. But this idea that they have to respond by email is like, that's so passe. Like, what are emails? They're, they're something that was invented about 20 years ago. But even text messages or Snapchat or whatever device or social media platform that you use to respond, you know, I just have to encourage them. It's okay to respond to your elder and to your pastor. In fact, if you want to honor them, even if they use email, respond to them. It should not be like sending a letter to the International Space Station that doesn't seem to receive our letters very well. Secondly, just practically, we're gonna move on very quickly, but just practically, how do, you, how do you esteem your leadership in the church? You pray for them. I know a number of you are praying constantly for your leadership in the church. I'm just gonna, you want this church to be healthy? You wanna be a healthy church that thrives in the 21st century in a secular society? Keep praying for your, your leadership, why? Because your leadership is under attack. And the devil knows that if he can trip up the leadership, if he can file their mission, if he can run interference on their cause and their work, it affects the whole body. So pray. And it's okay. It's okay. It won't go to their head if you send words of encouragement and words of thanks to them. You know what fuels Reverend Stam? Some of you know Reverend Stam, the late Reverend Stam. He used to say, you know, you know what fuels the, the drive to get back into the study on Monday? Is the encouragement you receive on Sunday. You know, because what happens in pastor, to pastors, and it happens to me, it happens to many pastors, 
Um, you know, when, when, they, when they're done preaching on Sundays, they often go into the, into the forest of doubt. They, they start questioning their ministry. Why? Because they have one question that they, they keep asking. Is all the labor that I'm putting in and the pouring out of my soul on Sunday to, the, to God's people, is it in vain or is it producing fruit? Is it making a difference in the lives of God's people? This is our heart's cry. You want to mitigate that cry? You just send a word of encouragement. Not about their preaching style, not about who they are. No, this word strengthened me. It encouraged me. It blessed me. It convicted me. Send them a word of, of encouragement. That's what it means to love God's appointed leaders. That's one mark of a, of a healthy church. Here's number two, pursue and practice peace. Live in peace with each other. That's what, that's what Paul says. He says, the call to live in peace or pursue peace permeates all of the Bible. God is passionate about peace. He is a God of peace. He sent his son to procure peace between us. We were enemies of God. His death was to reconcile us with the Father so that there's peace now between us and the Father. Paul says in Romans 8, Romans 5, verse 8, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Why? To bring us peace. That's the transcendent reality of peace, that we have now, because of Christ, peace with God. But that doesn't just end there. No, he wants there to be peace among his people. And so we write, read in Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two Gospels one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There is now no Greek or Scythian slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. That's peace. And God loves that. And so much the church of Jesus Christ. We must love peace. But we must love peace here. In this church and we must pursue it let me tell you what it doesn't mean to pursue peace some people think that peace is just merely avoidance like two warring nations who decide not to go to battle are at peace because they are not in full full battle that's not peace that's just the absence of war we live in a very fractured world because there's a lot of nations that are fomenting anger against each other, but they're not in, in fighting mode because they want to sustain a certain kind of peace. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. You know, what happens sometimes in the church of Jesus Christ to sustain peace, we just avoid members that we don't really like. Ten years ago, this brother said such and such to me. I don't even look at him when I come to church. That's avoiding. That's nothing to do with the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ is not avoiding each other. Pursuing peace demands active engagement with each other, even when there are issues there. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 9, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. 
In saying this, I realize that we are not, it doesn't mean that we're going to be always in, completely, in complete agreement on different positions within the church. There's going to be people who hold very passionately to their position, and that's going to cause a little bit of friction. I get that. But often we let that friction ride above the, above the calling for peace. COVID-19 has proven that. We've allowed COVID-19 mandates and our view on the vaccination and all these things to ride above the calling that Jesus has for his church to pursue peace. Oh, I'll never talk to that person again. He thinks like this or she thinks like that. We'll never have them over. How about we put peace on top? The active pursuit of bearing each other, even with their differences of opinion, in the name of Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Even if they have a different opinion than you. That's okay. We're not all cookie-cutter kids. There are differences amongst us. But a healthy church realizes the differences and yet says, I am going to pursue peace. Here's a third. So it respects this leader. A healthy church respects the leadership, pursues peace. Here's number three. Ministers with great patience. Ministers with great patience. Here it comes, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the, the faint-hearted, help the weak. Here it comes. Be patient with them all be patient with them all paul says be patient with these three groups of people i kind of have in mind the idle the disheartened the weak and everybody else in church i need you to be patient now he's not just talking to the leadership of the church he's talking to our mutual call as as, as, as in the office of priesthood to be patient with one another and that is difficult I just want to make sure we understand what the word patience means this morning. I think as parents and maybe as children, we have um, taken the word patience something in the same way as we take the word just be quiet or just stay, stay there, just relax. You know, children will come, uh, I have five of them, and, and sometimes they'll say, you know, is dinner almost ready? We'll say, just, just be patient. Are we almost there yet? Just be patient. <laughs> When's it my turn? Just be patient. And so what patience has become is just this idea that you just kind of grind, grin, grin, grin and bear it and bite your teeth and bite your tongue until it's over. You're like, finally, I'm, I'm there. And confession, I, I'm probably one of the least patient people here. This is something I pray about regularly, that I'll just be more patient on the road, everywhere. You know, I'll be driving down the road on a very beautiful day. And it's around 4 5 o'clock at night, and, and the volume on the road begins to build. I lived in the mission field for too long, and we didn't have volume. But you got volume here. I'll be on the road, and, and I'll see these cars, you know, the, the volume's starting to build up, and I'll start seeing brake lights. You know what I think? Where's that exit? Where's the exit? Where's the exit? I gotta get out. There must be a faster way. I gotta go. And my dear wife will just say to me, it's okay, you know, just relax. <laughs> Can't be that bad. We'll get through this. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Because I'm impatient. But I'll tell you something. Something I'm working with. That's not what Paul has in mind. 
that patience is the, just the sum total of just grinning and bearing it until you can get what you want. Now, when he calls his church to patience, he's calling his church to a deeper type of lifestyle. And that lifestyle is this, that you are prepared to suffer with, walk with, endure with people who are not quite like you. Who kind of get your goat. Who, 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 who make you have to realize that you just have to be there for the long haul. That you're going to have to suffer with them in the hard times and in the good times even, that you're going to be there with them. It means to bear up. It means to endure. It means to suffer. And, and, and this idea of patience, which is way more comprehensive than the idea of just grinning and bearing until you get what you want, this idea of patience captures the whole New Testament theology on patience. And that's why when Paul talks about patience, he connects it to love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. The first thing that Paul says about love in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I get it. We use 1 Corinthians 13 as a text to bless marriages. Lots of wedding texts on 1 Corinthians. It's a love chapter. It's not really about marriage, though you could derive some marriage, marital truths from it. It really is about the church. Listen, it's about you and me in the church loving each other. And the first thing that Paul says about the church... In 1 Corinthians 14, 13, about love, love is patient. So important is the building up of the body of Christ. So important is the cultivating of love that it demands patience. It's probably something that we struggle with the most, to be patient with each other. And Paul gives three examples of where he wants his church to be patient with each other. He could have given ten. He gives three. Here's one. With the idle. Those who are somewhat lazy. Now the Greek doesn't use the word idle. Actually the Greek uses the word someone who goes their own way. And, and, and Bible translators have had a real hard time translating the Greek word. There's not a lot of examples in Scripture, so they're like idle, disruptive. Some translations have disruptive. Some people have idle. I like what one pastor did with this. I'm going to follow him on this. He says, those people in the church who are busybodies. You know what a busybody is? I don't know if we use that word too often anymore. But a busybody is someone who has a little bit too much time on their hand, and what they do is they begin to interfere in other people's lives. They begin to gossip. They begin to talk about other people. They have too much time on their hands. So-and-so said this. So-and-so did that. And then they begin to, to, to expand that and, and bring other people into their web of gossip. And what they really do is begin to break down the core health of a church because what they're doing is, is judging people and gossiping with people and, and being really disruptive. And Paul says, you know, you need to be patient with them. I, I don't know what, how you really are patient with busybodies. I, I don't really know. But, but he does say this. When it comes to busybodies, busy people who are disruptive and idle, he says, warn them. What does that mean for you? Well, if you're with a person who is a busybody and who is running interference in the church, who is gossiping and making people become, you know, kind of fodder to your comments, to your thoughts, you need to say, I'm not going to go there. My patience for that runs to about right here. We're stopping now. We can pray for them. 
We can talk to them personally. We're not going to gossip. Warn them, Paul says, warn them because that's what we do in a church that loves those who are idle. Here's the other one. Encourage the disheartened. Encourage the disheartened. You know, I think in the church of Jesus Christ, there are a lot of people who deal with disheartened hearts. Here in, in that's the NIV, the, the ASV has encouraged the faint-hearted. Their hearts are faint because of the challenges of life. Their souls are weighed down, even maybe crushed by the sadness and griefs and burdens that they are carrying. You know who they are. Those who are struggling with dreams that are not being fulfilled. Maybe they would love to be married and they just can't get married or they just don't find a life partner. Maybe they love to have children and that dream has not happened yet. Maybe they're looking for a certain type of work and that never happened. Maybe, maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe they're dealing with chronic illness. Maybe they're just hurting, they're insecure and they just can't find, they, can't, they compare themselves with others and just, they're just left so insecure. There's a lot of faint-hearted people in the church of Jesus Christ. And when Paul says, be patient with everyone, and encourage the faint-hearted? He's not saying, well, here's the little anecdote, here's a little solution that you need to fix everybody's problems. No, what he's saying is that you walk with them. There are times when people call me on the phone, I kid you not, there are times when people call me on the phone and they share their heart with me, how broken they are, how, how they've been hurt in their past by X number of people, what, what's all happened to them, and I have nothing to say. You say, really? Yeah, you, you talk a lot. I know I talk a lot, but I have nothing to say. And all you can do at times like that is listen. There's one woman I listened to for an hour and a half this past week, and at the end, I'm like, I just, all I can do is say, lady, let's pray. She wasn't looking for an answer. She was looking for my presence, someone who could shoulder the burden with her and then pray with her. A huge part, listen, a huge part of being a healthy church is walking with people who are disheartened, faint-hearted, who are struggling. But just be present. Don't be looking at your watch. Just be present with them. And as you are present with them, as you hear their burden, say, you know what? The one who can carry this is Christ. So let's pray. Let's hold our hands together and let's pray. That's the gift that God has given to the church. Here's the last one. Help the weak. Help the weak. He says, faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Help the weak. The weak actually in the church of Jesus Christ are those who are um, impoverished, in poverty. So they lack resources or they lack strength or sometimes both. They are literally weak. And the helping is really to help them. <laughs> physically help them. You may have to. And the church of Jesus Christ sometimes struggles a little bit with this because, because um, there are times when we kind of avoid the poor, avoid the refugee, avoid the weak, 
Because one, we know that to walk with them, it might take too much from us, so we kind of avoid them for one. Or two, and this is more sinister, when we see the weak or the poor in our midst, we say, well, subconsciously even, we say, well, we're not going to get anything back in return from them. So we kind of spend time with people that we know are going to respond to us. So we, we go to our family, we go to our friends, we go to our relatives, because that relationship is reciprocal. We give, they give, we give, we, they give, and we, you know, we have nice meals together, nice fellowship. But when you walk with the poor, when you walk with the broken, when you help the weak, you may get nothing in return. And Jesus says, exactly. This is what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in our age. Jesus even goes further. He says in Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 35, but love your enemies, do good to them. Now he's not even talking about brothers and sisters in the church. He's talking about your enemies. He says, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful and Jesus was merciful his whole ministry was to the weak to the poor to the broken to the sick and what did he get back in return nails into his hands and feet here's the last one minister with great patience we're just going to close up with this resist revenge and do good the fourth trait of a healthy church, resist revenge. You're like, well, I don't have a lot of revenge in me. I would, I would venture a guess right now, and I hope this is true, that no one in this audience right now, listening to me right now, is premeditating some act of revenge against a brother or sister in the church. I'm, pre I'm pretty safe to say that that's not happening here. So why would Paul say resist revenge? When, when people are not premeditating revenge in the church of Jesus Christ. Here's why. Because it's not the premeditated revenge that Paul's, Paul's focusing on. He's focusing on that immediate response that comes, sometimes comes up when you're prodded and you're triggered and you're poked in a way that you don't like it. And what's that immediate response? I like what the message, the message is the translation of the, of the New Testament, very dynamic translation. It says, and be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. That's the revenge we're talking about. It's that old nature that kind of pushes through the new nature and says, you said that? You did what to me? It's when you're on the road and you get cut off. And you do what? When someone says something mean to you, to your face, what's your response? When someone belittles you on Facebook or some form of social media, what do you do in response? I'll get them back. You know, this is what we do as children. You don't, you don't know how many times I've had to tell my children, I, I like to think I have pretty good children, but I, you don't know how many times I've had to tell my children Romans 12, verse 17. You guys know Romans 12, verse 17? If you don't, you should, especially you parents. Romans 12, verse 17 says, do not repay evil for evil, child. And your child will respond invariably, but they hit me first. 
And so you're going to hit them back. Yeah. That's exactly what we're going to do. Because we're child. We're children. Because the old nature is still bubbling up and, and dictating the new nature here. No, Jesus says, no, you as followers of Christ in a healthy church need to put to death the old nature. So you do not pay revenge. You seek to understand why maybe they're doing what they're doing, but you do not repay evil for evil. Jesus never condones that, ever, ever. Maybe it just means taking a deep breath and asking this question, how do I put Christ and what he wants me to do right into the center of this situation? How do I understand what's going on before I'm going to be understood by that person? Maybe it's not sending that email immediately. Maybe it's never sending that email. Maybe it's simply praying, God, help me. Because everything in me wants to do payback right now. But a healthy church does not walk in the ways of darkness when it comes to people who wrong us. It's not of Christ. So let me close with this. Every single trait of a healthy church is rooted in Christ. Everyone. You know, even the idea of, we'll just summarize them very quickly, the idea of respect to the authority in the church, Jesus led by example. He respected his father he says, my will is to the will of the Father. He sets the authority structure in his life between him and his Father. They're co-equal, and yet he saw his role of a, as a, of the Father as one that he had to respect because of his place in the Trinity. And he gives this role to the church. He says, now I'm under shepherds in the church, so listen, as I respected my Father in authority, you need to respect those who I've delegated in authority in the church. That's a trait of a healthy church. And he says, now, be at peace with each other. And the idea of being at peace, as we have already realized, is Christ giving his life as a sacrifice for others. You know, he was the Prince of Peace who gave his life to fight the war on our behalf. He is the author of our peace. And he says, now, come to me, and I will give you peace. Let peace reign here. And patience? Can you find anyone in the history of the universe the world or in all the universe that is more patient than Christ his whole ministry is characterized by patience right to the end you know when we sin you know when we sin when we sin all we're basically doing is slapping Christ in the face slapping him in the face and say you take my penalty you take my penalty you take my penalty and Christ returns to us and says I will and I love you. Repent and follow me, and you'll have rest for your soul. He keeps coming back in patience and saying, I still love you. He's so patient with us. I could not live this life if I didn't know that Christ was so patient with me. And because of his patience and long-suffering on my behalf, he's calling his church to follow in his footsteps. And revenge? If there's someone who had every right to do payback, to act an act, an act of revenge, it was Jesus Christ. 
The blood-curdling screams, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then hanging him on a cross in all that pain and all that agony. And his only response to those who were slaughtering him on a cross was, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No payback. Just love. Just good. That's what he calls us to do. The great shepherd has given us his Holy Spirit, loved ones. To make this family, this church family, a healthy church family. And he has given us many qualities of what that looks like. And my prayer is that these four qualities that you heard this afternoon may aid and abet you as a church in becoming a healthy church in Grimsby. A church that people, when they come in, they can see the love of Christ is here. It's cultivated in the love that we see amongst the membership. And God will be praised in such a church as this. Amen.